Welcome back to Commodity Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the team from Mercado.com.au. We are a team of agricultural market analysts, and we like to use data to form opinions on markets and the general agricultural space. These informal conversations are generally long-form discussions, about 20 to 40 minutes long, where we discuss events or factors in the agricultural space with a particular bias towards Australian agriculture. These discussions are either with our internal team of analysts or they are with some special guests. We hope you enjoy the conversation and gain some insights. If you've got any questions or if you want to suggest some ideas to us, please get in contact in the usual places, on, on email, on Twitter, wherever you uh, follow us. Uh, before we jump into it, I just want to say a big thank you to one of our supporters. Without our supporters, this wouldn't be possible. Today's supporter for this podcast is farmtender.com.au. We've had a good relationship with this business for a number of years, and it's quite impressed us that this is an ag tech business, but it's not like those ones just full of buzzwords and uh, just trying to make the shiniest thing possible. Uh, these are This is a business of doers, and uh, it's really quite interesting. They've made a lot of changes in their business in, in recent times, and one of the things that we find quite interesting is that they've moved into auctions. And they're starting to uh, auction things like uh, equipment and I think even uh, basically demountable buildings uh, last week. So it's an interesting concept and I think it's, it's good to see competition in that space. And uh, yeah, you can get on there and you can have a look and see what is for sale in their classified section. But now you can uh, you can actually bid on items, which is you know a big development. And this is this is quite a it's an interesting business because it's basically set up from a farmer uh, who uh, who understands farmers and he's built it up on on his own. So and we have got a pe- previous podcast that we did with uh, Dwayne back in oh, back in April, one of our early ones. So if you want to uh, listen to Dwayne, he's a he's a smart guy. Uh, jump onto that podcast. So now we'll just move on to the conversation with the team. Well, we've got Robert Herman here and Olivia Eger, uh, who's Olivia's based in our Sydney office. Uh, Robert sat next to me in sunny Ballarat. Uh, we're here to talk about the supermarkets. Are they the friend or foe, or are they their frenemy? Uh, so Robert wrote an article briefly about the supermarkets, uh, do you want to give us a bit of a brief overview, Robert, of what you had to say about our uh, our friends in uh, the supermarkets? Well, I thought um, they are our friends, um, but sometimes uh, they're our enemies, so hence the title of the article, uh, Supermarkets Are the Farmer's Frenemy. Um, it's an interesting situation, though, because one thing the supermarkets do is they give uh, produce a really good conduit to the customer. So what I mean by that is that uh, the... the Delivery systems are good. Uh, the um, freshness and, and safety of the food is good, and the uh, display and and getting it out through the um, checkout is really good too. The reality is that for the average consumer, the supermarket is the only place they actually see food. Really, they don't see it in a marketplace or in on on, on the paddocks. No, that's right. And and of course, the other thing that's happened over the last. 20 or 30 years, I suppose, is that concentration of food. So the, uh, you know, there used to be greengrocers and, and uh, butchers and bakers all around the place. A lot of people just get all of their food from the supermarket now. And uh, so they, they play a very important role. Um, but one of the things that... Uh, um, that, that important role comes with a lot of power and, um, and at times we see that power used to... Um, perhaps not always in the best light of the producer, and that's what we want to dig into today, I think. Yep, so 
so yeah, that's the idea: is that we we talk about it, where where the power is held, and uh, you know whether that consumer perception is is driven by the supermarkets as a way of as a positive for farmers. And you, you got a point about there of you know they offer cheap cheap prices to the uh, to the consumer and uh, are also the farmer's best friend. And we've seen, I guess, we've all heard this. Beautifully done, Andrew. I don't know how that happened, but uh, um, and that's exactly right. So they they send out two very clear messages. I think one is designed around the supply of the product. So the message for about supply is that it's safe, that it's fresh, that it's healthy, uh, that it's uh, ethically grown, um, and you know some of the other things that they add on to it. You know, we'll talk about that a bit later. That's one message. And, and generally they're talking about a, a product that is of a high quality. And, and that's got to be given. The, I mean, the meat, for example, in the supermarkets um, is high quality and it's consistent quality and it's, and it's a job well done. And generally that high quality would be looking at, you know, pushing prices up for the consumer. But the secondary message that comes through, and this is one where we need to, to explore as well, is that they are the customer's friends. So they're cheap, cheap. Down, down. down, down. <laughs> um, and it, it's a difficult thing to do because on the one hand, you're trying to attract customers uh, through the quality of your product, but to compete with your competitor and get market share, you've got to um, have cheap prices, competitive prices. And I just think that's a difficult equation. So, so, so let's look at it from a consumer point of view. Like primarily, I'm a consumer. Uh, I'm Scottish. So I like cheap things as well, but obviously I understand that you can't drive down the prices down down to the point of of the producer not being able to you know make a crust. Uh, but Olivia, you're you're our voice of the millennials. You know we we always quite hear that millennials are more interested in where the food comes from. You know buying artisanal products. Um, what what's your view on on supermarkets and? You know, is it, is supermarkets? Will we see a move like we did from the CDs and the, and uh, back to vinyl? Will we see a, a vinylization of supermarkets? <laughs> Not sure about that, but I mean, you walk into any supermarket these days, and they definitely are understanding that customer drive to to know where their food's coming from. You know, you can't walk into a store without seeing a, a big headshot of a, a farmer and showing their um, paddocks of cattle grazing behind them and and trying to promote that sort of sustainable, sustainable and provenance approach. But then you get the sort of oxymorons coming from the down-down, cheap-cheap and the, the um, sort of lower-value products that's you know, dragging in a lot of the consumers as well. So it's... Um, they're definitely trying to play at both sides here, and it's it's um it's hard to say what's winning and what's best for the farmers in the end. Olivia, um, you, you're up in Sydney, and uh, and you live in uh, the world famous environment called the Shire. Um, <laughs> now, one of Coles' um, features of their meat advertising is that it's no HGPs. Now, and and people think well. I don't know what they think, but before Cole started talking about no HGPs, how many of your compatriots in the Shire would have known what a HGP was? And in fact, I suppose the secondary question is, do anyone 
any of them know what it is now and what they think of that? <laughs> uh, taking a guess, I would say none knew what a HDP was and there's probably very little that still know what they are in, you know, in their true form now, but they're, they're getting the message that they're bad um, from, from the major, major retailers. It's um, part of their marketing campaigns now. But that comes back to, you know, who who is the driver of consumer percept, consumer perceptions? Is the driver of consumer perceptions the consumer and their wants and needs, or is it being pushed upon the consumer by what the supermarket thinks is a unique selling point? For instance, HGP free, you know, whatever else it may be at that time. So who who is who do you think is driving it? Do you think? The supermarkets drive what consumers want, or do you think the consumers drive what the supermarkets provide? That's open to everyone. Okay, well, it, but the, I mean, the next question is why does it matter, and um, is it is that important? And I suppose we need to put in context here: um, HGPs, according to the uh, WHO, are safe, and according to a uh, meat and livestock publication, I think it was in two thousand and eleven, they list a whole lot of benefits that come from the use of HTPs and they basically tally up to a lower cost of production because the, the cattle arrive at their optimum weights quicker. So therefore they use less commodity, they use less feed and less water and they have a lower carbon footprint. So if you're if you say that that's the reason for HTPs and that people in the scientific world are saying that they're safe, then when you use it as a marketing campaign such as Coles have done here, that's, you know, you could draw a, you know, far, far be me from drawing a long bow here, but it seems a bit disingenuous to raise the issue and say we've got no HGPs, but without explaining why we've got no HGPs. I don't know, Olivia, would, would you ask the question up in um, Cronulla of to whether people are, um, is that something they ask? Because before, you, before I go there, the, the answer to your question is yes and no, Andrew, about who's driving it, because I think the free-range egg, um, push is a direct consumer thing you know so you've got animal welfare you've got rspca you've got these sort of organizations raising the issue but for things like hgp and perhaps gm i don't know whether that's the case okay right the gm one gms are the same as hgps uh, considered to be safe uh, considered to be environmentally friendly and uh, better for the farmer Better for the environment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but it's another acronym. HGP is an acronym. I think if you have an acronym, then uh, that puts people off. It's a, it sounds like a chemical or or whatnot. But this is completely one hundred percent anecdotal. But you go to a supermarket and try and find caged eggs. They always seem to be the first ones sold out. So I don't think all consumers want uh, cage-free eggs. I think a lot of consumers do want the cheapest eggs. And hence why you can rarely find them, even though there is this, there is adequate set shelf space uh, set aside for caged eggs, but they all sell out you know, fairly quickly. And I think um, we there is a bit more around the egg story, and that is that we know from the um, producers that we work with that producing free-range eggs is more expensive than producing caged eggs. And that doesn't mean that they don't won't produce them, but it just means that they need to get a higher return for them. And when you're, you've got this story about, you know, it's an ethical story or a healthy story or whatever the story is that the supermarket's putting out with with 
GM free and no HDPs and free range. But at the same time, you're pushing your prices down to compete with your um, with your rivals, and uh, you nearly pushed that button again, Andrew. You, you no, want to do it? It's too slow. It's too slow. <laughs> um, so it's all about timing. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because um, I w- I would like to see that there's there's not that pressure um, coming from a supermarket that is clearly designed to be a marketing campaign because there isn't any science basis to it and there, and there would you couldn't have argued uh, Olivia I don't think that there was a con- consumer push for no HTP so because they never knew they existed exactly so so, so here's another example uh, a certain uh, beer manufacturer in the US I think it was in the Super Bowl either last year or the year before um, had an advertisement which was a very expensive advertisement in a very expensive slot and it basically was talking about how their beer didn't use corn syrup and all the other ones used corn syrup and let's be honest you know the beers we're talking about are those well-known American ones which taste like garbage regardless of whether they use corn syrup but they had basically said that uh, they're pointing out that, you know, because they don't use corn syrup, the other ones must have a nasty product. The reality is that, you know, the corn syrup doesn't really make any difference to the end product. It's it's just a, you know, part of the, the processing and it's just a, a cheaper way of producing that, that particular beer. And there was a bit of an upkick from, from the corn producers in the US who basically were... They didn't want consumers to be fearful of corn, thinking that well, if it's in if it, if that particular company is not using it because it's bad, then what else are they should it be removed from? So, a lot of it, I think, is largely, you know, market driven to have a point of differentiation, you know, and it's, I guess, it's all about making money, and if they feel that they can make make money from excluding something rather than including something, well, can you really blame them, I guess? Well, I think in that example, that's correct. But the, the examples we're seeing in Australia, though, is that um, these um, requirements are being made on the produce that farmers supply. And if I just go back to the MLA publication, um, HGB and beef production was a, was called a best practice guide. It was published in 2011, but... It stated that you can have an increased daily weight gain of 10 to 30%. Um, you can have feed conversion improved by 5 to 15% and carcass leanness improved by 5 to 8%. Now, the total of that benefit was somewhere between $30 and $80 per head, and that's back at, at, at that time. So if, you, if the marketing campaign of the supermarket is taking away that opportunity, because clearly if you want to sell to Coles, um, you can't use HDPs, then it's adding to the cost of production. And, you know, we all know in business that that's one of the things that we're trying to do, reduce the cost of production. And I'm sure, Olivia, that Coles have a model where they um, are all the time looking at their cost of production. Yeah, I mean, they've still got their own sustainability focuses in in the way of, you know, reducing refrigeration and... Um, driving their energy use down, but then they're not allowing their suppliers to do similar initiatives to reduce their footprint. Well, the other, th- I mean, 
I think you use this in one of other publications, uh, Andrew, is we talk about the thin edge of the wedge. And, you know, once this becomes, you know, once free-range eggs become normal, what comes next? Once HTPs become normal, something else has to be added. And if it's always at the expense of the producer's efficiency or an added cost to what they do, um, that that makes the equation to be a producer, an efficient producer, more difficult each year. Yeah, well, I've said it all along. Incrementalism is a big issue within the supply chain. And, you know, in the past we've talked about it as being from a social license point of view and things being pushed upon the industry. In this case, we're talking more about the the supply chain mandating things to their suppliers, which becomes, you know, another additional cost on what are already, in many cases, quite thin margins, especially in years of drought. So, you know, we see it. There's a good example, the the pork industry. Legally... Uh, Coles, Woolies and Aldi, uh, if if the pork meat is fresh, it has to come from Australia. But uh, you try and find some Australian-made bacon on the shelves and it would be a pretty a pretty tough uh, tough order. And and that's purely uh, um, working on the, the side of the equation that the supermarkets worked on to say we will provide cheaper, cheaper prices. Um, but that's a classic example or a clear example of impacting on the Australian pork industry by um, bringing in those cheaper products. They must be cheaper. I mean, you, you wouldn't be bringing in product from overseas unless it was cheaper and more efficient to put on your shelves. But it's driving added pressure onto the local producer. And it's quite a lot of food miles to bring packets of, pack of bacon from Denmark all the way to Melbourne. So it is one of those things where... I guess, Olivia, you pointed out there about sustainability and all of the you know, feel-good things. All those feel-good type of things. And that's, you know, it doesn't quite mark up to everything they say and do when the reality is that, you know, bringing pork from the other side of the world isn't environmentally friendly. And we don't know which countries those are coming from. And is there the same level of... Uh, oversight over those production methods as there is in Australia with our, all of our, you know, audit processes. So it is, you know, we, we did it recently at Mercado. We went out, uh, the scientists that we are, and took a photograph of the uh, Coles supermarket shelf and found that, you know, nearly every packet of bacon was uh, was from an overseas. So the... Qu- yeah. Go on, Olivia. Oh, yeah. one, one thing that... Um, you know, the supermarkets are promoting that they want to be, um, you know, out there for Australian farmers and support local production, yet you go onto the Coles and Woolworth site and there's there's no option when you're shopping online to be able to filter by Australian-made products. Hmm. So it's... Um, I didn't realise that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you can filter by brand, you can filter by everything else, but not by Australian-made. And you would have thought one of those things would be an easy and simple way to be supporting what's grown here. I think we don't we don't want to be... Um, I mean, we don't need to be supermarket bashers in this exercise here. Um, but I, I suppose the question is, does anyone really care? You know, do, do any of the consumers really care that um, these and, and can they understand it? Can it be explained? Because I think it's very difficult. If if you said to somebody, um, 
Well, the a good example was the uh, is the GM um, product that's used in the um, Impossible Burger or the or the fake meat. You know, there's, there's GM modification. If we un- have to under- explain and, under- and and our consumer has to understand all of those things, um, I mean, I'm th- pretty sure they'll quickly get sick of listening and just and just go away and, and make up their own mind again. So my question is, d- does anyone really care apart from us? I suppose. Well, I guess. I guess the thing is, from from a, a consumer point of view, do they care? I think a, I personally think a lot of consumers, you know, the, the money in their pocket is the most important variable. There's, we're a wealthy country, but there's still a lot of the country is is watching every penny that they spend, and that is going to be the the, the primary driver of their decisions. But you look back over the last eighteen months, and you would have to say that the consumers do care about Australian farmers. And Coles and Woolworths and Aldi have probably picked up on that because of the fact that, well, you know, you go to any pub in Australia and there's a palmer for a farmer or, you know, donations left, right and centre for uh, for fodder. And I think, you know, those supermarkets have probably realised that, well, they have to, you know, bank some of that uh, that care for the farmer, farmers in Australia. And that's something that, you know, we've, we've got to credit some of that as an industry and credit some of that... Uh, that sort of goodwill towards the industry and uh, and try and maintain that. Because the, the supermarkets don't get it all their own way. We don't want to sound like, um, um, you know, this is a... It's not a massive problem for Australian farmers because our prices are driven by our export markets and, you know, the majority of our product is exported. So whether they're um, putting on, you know, price pressure or uh, quality pressures, in the end... The Australian agricultural scene has got a lot of options, and it's the export market that gives them those options. So, you know, you look at it; the, the world is growing in population. Large parts of the world are growing in in wealth and spending ability. So, I guess you said, who, d- does the consumer really care? Does it, and that's really the question: is really does the Australian consumer really care? And I guess my point would be: do we really care about the Australian consumer? You know, in 20, 30, 40 years, our production isn't going to be able to ramp up massively in that period of time. We're, we're quite an efficient country. So a lot of our products are going to be exported overseas and more and more. The, what, what percentage did you say, Robert, is sheep is, over, is exported? Uh, S- I think 70%? It's, it's high 70s, yeah. High, high 70s. 70s. Beef, high 70s? Yeah, well. similar, yeah. So we're really talking about a consumer which only contributes 20% of our... Uh, our sort of uh, demand. So that's only going to shrink over time and economics plays out and the person with the biggest uh, amount of money to put in will be the ones who, who pay and, and in the future it may not be Australians, it may be just the wealthy and, uh, you know, natural meats could be a, a delicacy. So do you think, Olivia, that it can be a... Um so a, a Sydney-led recovery from the uh, customer demand up there, you know, where suddenly the consumers are going to, um, you know, start eating more meat and, and, and demanding more Australian product, or is this... I mean, the trend, we had a look at the trends, I think we've dropped from, uh, I might be wrong here, but about 10 kilos to 6 kilograms of lamb um, per Australian at the moment, and uh, doesn't look like it's turning around, does it? No, not in the red meat situation. You've got all that um, that gap 
happening in Asia at the moment, especially left by um, African swine fever in the pork industry that's, you know, driving demand for red meat over there, which, you know, it's making making meat expensive here and um, it's becoming more of that luxury product, I guess, um, on the, you know, typical Australian dinner table. So, you know, add another five, ten years onto that, it'll be interesting to see how much red meat we're eating at all. Might just be chicken dinners every night. Yeah. <laughs> or, or if you watch the uh, ABC last night, it might be fake chicken dinners. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm not pessimistic about all of this, but I, it, it probably, I'm showing my age here a little bit, that it annoys me that people are, seem to be sort of a little bit misled. And, and I guess marketing and advertising is about misleading. Or, or leading, you know. Well, they—they—that's—that's that's not true. If you went to a marketing professional, they would tell you that it's all about educating the consumer, but it's probably miseducating the consumer, really. Yeah. Well, in, I, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, I said I was showing my age in saying that I was probably a bit grumpy about this, but I—it I, just seems to me that when production, you know, agricultural production is a fine line. It's tough, you know. The the you don't make it's not there's no easy money made margins are, are hard fought for and when you have a tool taken away and in this case we're, we're using as the example today hdps but it could easily be gm or it might be glyphosate or something like that down the track when you have those tools taken away they they they're in place now or they're used because they either improve increase efficiencies improve production or reduce costs so somewhere along the line um someone's going to have to say um, enough's enough, you know, we can't keep producing more for less if these tools are taken away. But then it comes to effectively power of position. So you have, for a long period of time, supermarkets held a very strong negotiation stance. So what happens in, let's say, 15, 20 years, and really the buyers are, are all from overseas, Australian consumers will still want meat, so they're going to have to pay up. Supermarkets will have to pay up in order to get that uh, that supply. So I think it really is, like I, I'm the same as you, I think it's, it's positive. And largely I think we won't really, in the meat industry at least, I don't think we'll care what Coles Woolers do in 10, 15 years' time because they will just be a customer and they might not necessarily be a relatively important customer compared to likes of China, Indonesia, anywhere else in the world. So, yeah, I think it's, it's all it's all positive, and I think in the next couple of years we may see a, a bit of a a small scale sample of that with the African swine fever, which will will take away a fair amount of our uh, uh, supply. Well, that'd be a start of another whole new podcast, Andrew. If we want to talk about that. Um, Olivia, what did, what do you think as a summary? I'm I'm just about done, and I'm not I'm not pessimistic, but I'm a little bit frustrated. Yeah, <laughs> the the relationship between producers and suppliers it's obviously a it's a difficult one. It's a tight line between um, you know providing those um, cheaper prices in store and then back back down the chain to farmers, but. I mean, like you said in the beginning, they're very much a necessary um, marketing chain at the moment. But as exports do 
do expand into those markets, it might be less and less impacted. Yeah, well, for once in a while, our team is always in agreement and uh, we seem to have similar sort of viewpoints on it. I think we'll probably leave it there. Uh, we're not trying to bash the supermarkets, we're just trying to put some points across and it's not really bashing the supermarkets anyway, it's really bashing the marketing and uh, you know, the removal of tools which would help our, our production efficiencies. So thanks, Olivia. Thanks, Robert. Um, and uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, as is always the case, please leave us a like on whoever uh, you get this podcast from, whether it's iTunes or Spotify. Leave a review and share it with your friends. And again, uh, we like to thank our uh, supporters for this podcast. <laughs>